Welcome to the second episode in our podcast series. My name is Ollie Henry and I'm an associate in the patent litigation team. And today I'll be discussing the concepts of value transfers and reverse payments in patent settlement agreements with my colleague, Pat Tracy, who's a partner in the competition team. To kick things off, Pat, I wonder if you could explain why we need to be aware of the inclusion of value transfers in patent settlement agreements. Thanks, Ollie. As discussed in the first podcast in the series, the competition authorities are particularly interested in settlement agreements that lead to a delay in market entry in return for a value transfer. And that's a value transfer from an originator company to a generic or a so-called reverse payment. The competition authorities regard this as a form of market sharing because, in effect, you have a company on the market making a payment or providing some other value to a company that's not on the market with the result the recipient delays or abandons its plans to enter the market. So there's a a sharing of the market. The Commission's interest in value transfers is reflected in the categorisation of patent settlement agreements that the Commission proposed in its final report uh, that followed the pharmaceutical sector inquiry over 10 years ago, in fact. Uh, And this categorisation was used in its annual patent settlement monitoring exercise until very recently. And this categorization indicates that settlement agreements that limit generic entry and include a value transfer from the originator are likely to attract a high degree, the highest degree of competition law scrutiny. And they are the so-called B2 agreements. So value transfers matter because they can give rise to breaches of competition law? You're absolutely right. And it's not to say that a value transfer in a settlement agreement will automatically breach competition law. It it depends on the circumstances. And the Court of Justice of the European Union recently made clear in generics that the question is whether the net gain to the generic manufacturer is sufficiently large or, in the court's terms, sufficiently beneficial to induce the generic manufacturer to delay its independent market entry. If it is, then the value transfer is likely to signal a restriction of competition. In contrast, of course, value transfers may be justified from a competition law perspective if they're appropriate and strictly necessary in the light of the legitimate objectives of the agreement. So, for example, if an originator makes a payment to the generic company that compensates the generic for, let's say, the actual costs of litigation or the disruption caused by litigation, that is likely to be justified under competition law. Right, that that all makes sense. I guess it sounds as though we should really be keeping an eye out for substantial reverse payments. You're absolutely right. That would be a great start. But of course, as with many things, it's not quite as simple as that. And it's clear that while lump sum payments made by the originator to the generic are the most obvious form of value transfer, uh, the Court of Justice has confirmed that the concept of a value transfer will be interpreted broadly and in fact could include any direct or indirect monetary or non-monetary transfer of value. And that may even include payments that are made or values of transfer that take place under different parts of an overall arrangement. Uh, And one example of this was in the generics case uh, where the settlement agreement between GSK and the two generic companies, Generics UK and Alpharma, provided for marketing or promotional allowances of £1.65 million per annum for three years and 
£100,000 per month for up to 12 months, respectively. Now, to put this in context and maybe to explain a little bit why these payments may have been seen as a concern, the UK's Competition Appeal Tribunal, which originally referred the questions up to the Court of Justice for review, compared this figure, or these figures, to GSK's then annual marketing budget, which was £400,000 for all its products. And by way of another example, under the settlement agreement between GSK and Generics, GSK purchased a stock of generic paroxetine from Generics UK for $12.5 million. Now, a payment of that nature could, of course, be justifiable if, for example, the value transferred matched the value of the stock being purchased. However, the CMA, Competition Markets Authority, decision records that GSK agreed to the amount that it would pay without actually knowing the quantity of stock that it was purchasing. And the CMA also noted that once it received the stock, uh, GSK simply destroyed it. Uh, and those facts raised a few questions and a few eyebrows. As I recall, in, in the generics case, the generic manufacturers also had the benefit of being able to enter the market in a limited way with a generic peroxidine product that was in fact manufactured by GSK. Would that constitute a value transfer, even though the generic manufacturers had to purchase the stock from GSK? Again, a very good question. And the GSK case is a very interesting case because of the type of arrangements that were taking place in it. And so in that uh, agreement, the generic entrants were provided with a significant but limited supply of generic peroxetine by GSK. Uh, the generics had to pay a set price. And provided that no other generic company was able to enter the market with an independent product, they could expect to sell that peroxetine for a, a profit. Uh, given those facts, the Court of Justice agreed with the UK Competition Authority and the CAT, the UK Competition Appeal Court, that the margin which the generic company was likely to earn on the specified volume supplied, the so-called distribution margin, was also a relevant transfer of value from a competitional perspective. What if the originator, in that case GSK, had granted a license to the generic company under which the generic company, say, paid a royalty back to the originator company? Would that still constitute a value transfer from the originator to the generic, even though the royalties are being paid in the other direction? Well, first of all, in answer to that question, we have to acknowledge uh, that settlement agreements often involve the licensing of intellectual property rights. And indeed, the European Commission's technology transfer guidelines include a complete section addressing licensing in the context of settlement agreements. But whether a license constitutes a value transfer, or to look at it differently, whether a license gives rise to a situation in which a value transfer can take place, will depend on the nature and the terms of the originator and the generic. So for example, if the royalty paid by the generic reflects what other generic companies would expect to pay in the absence of a settlement agreement, that license is unlikely to be seen as a problematic value transfer. In contrast, if the generic company pays only a nominal royalty or a royalty that is substantially less than what is perceived to be or what is or can be shown to be the fair market value, the license may well be viewed as a value transfer. 
Although the question of licenses, in fact, wasn't directly addressed in the Court of Justice's judgment in generics, which we've been talking about, it's likely that it will be considered in the pending Kirka appeal. In the Kirka case, uh, Servier and Kirka entered into an agreement uh, which settled UK patent litigation. Uh, but they also concluded a license which covered various Central and Eastern European markets, which were of particular interest to Kirker. The Commission considered that the license agreement, the conclusion of the license agreement, was an inducement for Kirker to enter into the settlement agreement. And this was reflected in its decision, where it found that this was part of a breach of the competition rules. On appeal, however, the General Court of the European Union rejected the Commission's analysis uh, looking at the facts, uh, and in part, at least, the rejection was on the basis that the licence agreement involved royalty payments at a fair market value. I believe the Commission has recently given its decision in the Cephalon Teva proceedings, which relate to the sleep disorder drug modafinil. Is there anything in that decision that it will be worth bearing in mind from a value transfer perspective? Very much so. Uh, in that case, and we don't have much detail about the actual facts, but as far as we can tell, uh, the Commission found that the value transfer was actually mainly made through a package of commercial transactions. And according to the Commission's summary of its decision, which is the only thing we currently have on a public basis, uh, these transactions included an agreement for the generic to supply the API for modafinil to Teba at guaranteed prices and at guaranteed volumes, even though the originator already had several API suppliers supplying it at lower prices. The package also included a license to modafinil-related IP rights held by Teva, even though the originator had always considered that it didn't need a license of that sort. And so in the light of, of those circumstances, the Commission concluded that these transactions would not have occurred under normal market circumstances, or at least not on the same terms. And the Commission found that the uh, agreements in question had no plausible explanation, other than the commercial interest of the parties to agree not to compete in the relevant markets. Uh, and the Commission summarized its position as, in, in effect, the total value transfer was significant, the transactions were very attractive to Teva, and it was mainly this package of transactions that induced Teva to stay out of the market. Are there any other types of non-cash value transfers that we should look out for? There is one issue that hasn't really yet been addressed in Europe in a substantive way, although it has been considered on more than one occasion in the US. And that is whether a so-called non-AG commitment will amount to a value transfer in the context of a patent settlement. And a non-AG commitment is where an originator agrees not to launch an authorized generic for a certain period of time. According to the US courts, such commitments should be treated just as severely as reverse cash payments, because not only do they delay entry of a generic product, so the actual generic itself, but they also reduce the number of generic competitors that will ultimately enter the market. Now, the EU courts are yet to consider this in detail. And of course, the regulatory situation in Europe is, is somewhat different. But the Commission has issued guidance that suggests that in its view, commitments not to launch an authorised generic could give rise to effects 
on competition. So stepping back and, and looking at value transfers in the round, are there any key takeaways? I think the main takeaways uh, on value transfers are that a wide variety of commercial side deals can be construed to be a value transfer and to have an impact on competition. But on the other hand, not all value transfers will give rise to competition concerns. And there is really quite a bit of uncertainty surrounding how related transactions will be assessed in the context of settlements. And some of the key factors to bear in mind is that whether or not the transactions reflect a normal commercial bargain or give rise to substantial and very attractive returns or perhaps unexpectedly low costs for the prospective market entrant will be important, as will whether there's a clear link between the settlement agreement, a decision not to enter or to delay entry, and the commercial package more generally. All of those things will have to be looked at in the round. And the Commission's decisions so far exemplify the sort of arrangements that give rise to risks and where parties who wish to reduce competition law risks need to be careful. The GC judgment in Kirka did identify transactions that, in its view, didn't cause a competition law problem, despite the Commission's initial finding. And this was very much based on a close analysis of the facts. Uh, so we should have more clarity about the degree of risk and the correct way to assess such transactions once the Court of Justice of the EU gives judgment in the further Kirka appeal. And indeed, as the Teva decision has also been appealed initially to the General Court, that will give the EU courts the opportunity to provide a bit of further guidance. Uh, for the time being, though, I think the key takeaway is that the facts matter and it, you need to be very careful in concluding any settlement agreement to look at it in the round and to ask the question, how is this likely to proceed? Where is the commercial rationale? Thanks very much, Pat. Unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for in today's episode, but I'd encourage everyone to tune in for the next instalment where Sophie and Katie will be discussing the thorny issue of relevant markets in the context of competition law and how to assess whether parties to a patent settlement are potential competitors.